Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you are looking to get your questions answered, I retrieve them from the community tab of my YouTube channel. And it's not my traditional YouTube channel. It's the YouTube channel where this podcast lives. So if you go to YouTube and you search Ask Katie Anything, you'll find it. It's in the community tab. I ask for your questions on Sundays. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump into these questions. Now, question number one says, hey, Katie, I tend to attach to women teachers, psychologists, doctors, my aunts as well. It always happens when there's even the slightest sign of care or interest in me. It's been happening since I can remember, and I don't understand why. I have both parents, and even though my father never really cared and was quite abusive, I would say, I have a great mom or mom, but they're British, clearly. I have a great mom, really. She is amazing. She always played with me. She never yelled at me much, and I love her. I don't know, and I don't understand, but it always just felt easier to talk to someone else about emotions and stuff like that. We'll get into this. Very interesting. But the real problem, which I have, is that I've always dreamed about being their daughter so that they would feel the same amount of love as I felt towards them. And now it's gotten to the point where I fell in love with the daughter of my therapist. She's closer to me age-wise. We are two years apart. And I looked up on the internet because I wanted to know more about her. It's like I'm obsessed. I don't even know her. I just, I have seen her and know some really basic stuff about her. Though I guess it's not really love. I, I just don't understand why this keeps happening. It would make more sense to me if I was attaching to men. But I'm kind of afraid of them and I can't form a relationship with them. It's constant and strong. In periods in which I don't have that person near me, I'm really, really sad. It's the only thing that I can think about. I can't function without them. It's a really strong attachment, but one of the one um, of them keeps me alive because my therapist told me that if I attempted suicide, she would refer me out. I would be devastated. I can't tell anyone, but I really need help because I'm not even living my own life. It feels like I don't even have my own personality because I do always do activities and stuff, which they do, like the person that I'm currently attached to, so that they would love me more and we'd have something in common. Thanks for your advice and also sorry for my English. Your English is amazing. Okay, and there's also an add-on to this, but let's get into this first. Now, when it comes to who we would attach to, the reason that you can't attach to men is because the only man in your life, your father was abusive and not caring at all. And 
So why would you want to attach to men? I know in our brains, we're like, well, logically, wouldn't we be looking for that? Because we didn't get that. It's not always that way. Your brain and body connect men with abuse. So we're frankly not interested. It can be scary. We cannot want to be around men. It can be actually something that we're like an aversion that we have. We're like really uncomfortable with men being around us, being connected to them, attachment, any of that stuff. So it's almost like we just prefer for them not to exist in some ways, okay? Because of the abuse and the fact that I would assume we haven't had a chance to process it through fully yet, okay? So there's that piece and that's why you're not attaching to men. Now let's talk about your mom a little bit. And you said, you know, I have a great mom. She she always played with me. She never yelled at me and I love her. But you always felt it was easier to talk to someone else about emotions and stuff. And that is our answer. The reason that you attach to women teachers, psychologists, your aunts, doctors, other people who could, who are kind of like, not just positions of power, but we feel like they're like adult and older than us a little bit, right? And we're wanting and craving and striving for real emotional connection with women because your dad was absent and abusive. So we didn't have his support. Our mom was good on paper, mom, but maybe not emotionally supportive, mom. Meaning that I don't know if she was with your dad or not, but let's say that she was and he was abusive towards her. And so she learned to kind of just stuff all of her feelings down to protect herself and maybe even you or your siblings from the abuse so that she wouldn't show any, not just symptoms of it, but she wouldn't show you how hurt she was. Sometimes moms like try to put on a tough face and whatever it was, she wasn't able to show up for you emotionally. And so you've gone out into the world looking for other people to do that for you. Does that make sense? And so it's not so much that you, your mom's a bad mom and everything she did was terrible. It's emotionally she was absent for whatever reason. I know emotional absence or emotional neglect is abuse, but I think we often struggle to call it that because we think, well, they did everything else or like they did their best or, you know, they worked really hard or like they, my dad was abusive and she was like pretty much a single parent. You know, we can make all these excuses for them. And I'm not saying that that stuff's not true also, but that, that doesn't mean that we also did not feel neglected emotionally by them. Does that make sense? Those two things can exist together. I know it feels like they can't, but they can. And so my guess is that that's what happened. And that's why you have this craving of attachment to women and why you want them so badly to be your mom, because you want to be able to talk to your mom or the mother figure in your life about your emotions and what's going on and how you're feeling about life and all of the the real deep stuff that makes you you. You want to have that connection. And so when someone shows interest, we think, oh, this will be the one that will give me the connection. This will be the one. And then we attach to them. And the only way to stop that from happening is to do inner child work. Now, I have an inner child workshop available on my website for purchase. It's four hours worth of a live stream of me walking you through um, inner child work, what it's like, how we can do it. Um, I know it seems a little woo-woo. I even have books in my Amazon shop, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton about inner child work. So if you know, you're wanting to do some work on your own or bring it in with your therapist, there's a lot of great resources there as well. And I mentioned those in the workshop. I also have a workshop coming up soon about attachment itself and 
why that happens, what we can do to heal and all of that. But inner child work is really, I think, what's going to be healing for you because what we need to be able to do is to give that love and affection and attention and overall emotional support to ourselves so that we're not looking out in our world for someone to do it for us, right? That's what's happening right now. This is that attachment thing that we feel like obsessed and it kind of feels out of control. That's us trying to have someone else fill that void that our mom really should have, but didn't. And I know it sucks when we can think, but well, she didn't. So like, how do I fix this? Or like, that doesn't seem, that doesn't make any sense. How could I possibly do that? And I'm here to tell you that it feels weird, but we are the only ones that can actually do that for us. We can't really find somebody out in the world to fill that void because other people will not be around and we can't rely on them 100%. They have their own lives. They have boundaries. They're independent, right? But we can do it for ourselves. We can offer ourselves, you know, mothering statements and support and love. We can talk to younger us and offer her some compassion and some emotional support. We can do all of those things that we heal, not only us today, but us back when, you know, we we really wanted to talk to our mom about that stuff and she wasn't capable. Or for some reason, we felt like we couldn't talk to her about it, whatever the case. Okay. I hope that helps. And I hope that that kind of makes sense of it. Okay. Now there was a comment and it said, as an add-on, I do this sort of transference towards health professionals. I'm going through this right at the moment. And it's like, I need them to like me. And I feel like their opinion is the most important thing to me. I also feel like I'm stuck and I won't recover because I just don't feel capable of stopping my disordered behaviors by myself. Now, the transference towards health professionals and feeling like they know everything is incredibly common. It could be the same as the person who asked that original question. I don't know enough about your history with your family, but if you feel, if any of that resonated with you, I think inner child work could be beneficial and attachment stuff could also help. But I, I don't think, if sometimes I think that people in power positions, people who are health professionals, doctors, uh, you know, therapists, I don't even know, it could be a nurse or anybody in those kinds of what I would call like medical positions of power, or health positions of power. It's very common for pe- people and many of my patients and even sometimes myself in general, where we just think that they know everything, that they have the best answer. And it wasn't until, I don't know, recently for me, let's say in the last like 10, 15 years, where I'm like, maybe I should get a second opinion or like, I don't know if I agree with that. And like being, feeling free to question them and to have another viewpoint, get it, get it from someone else. And maybe it's because I worked in the hospital system and I realized like, you know, doctors are people too, and they're going to have their opinions and it's good to get a second opinion because that's just one person's opinion. And you could talk to me about an issue and I would have one take, but you could talk to another therapist and they would have another take just because we are educated the same, but we're different people in the way that we utilize that education, right? And so it is normal to feel like their opinion is the most important thing or that they're the, they know the most. Um, but I have a feeling if you feel like it's a transference, then that would have to do with childhood and the way that you have imprinted or interpreted the relationships that you've had with adults. And this could come from things that your parents have said to you about it or the way your parents interact with health professionals. Or like I said, this could be similar to the first question where this has more to do with inner child work and maybe abuse, neglect, things like that, that we're trying to kind of manage. And remember, neglect doesn't have to look like someone not bathing you or feeding you or things like that. It can be emotional neglect. So think about it and figure out what's happening 
for you. And then my encouragement, especially in therapy, is to bring this up. It's okay. Transference is incredibly, incredibly common. Any therapist worth their salt is going to understand it and be able to help you better manage it and see where it's coming from and work with you to heal. So don't feel like something's wrong with you or this is weird. I know it can be uncomfortable, but it's very, very normal in therapy. And that's why therapists exist. Also, the last little part of this because a lot of us aren't capable of stopping our disordered behaviors by ourselves. In fact, I don't even think I can do that. I know better as a therapist, but to implement it in my own life is a completely different thing. And it's very normal to need the support of a mental health professional to guide us out of that unhealthy or disordered behavior or situation that we're in. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. Question number two says, hey, Katie, can you give any advice about being angry at oneself? Lately, I feel angry because during the past few years, I pressed me too much and it negatively and I neglected my needs. Now, I feel like I've wasted too much time and this makes me aggressive towards my towards my close people. It's like I secretly wish that they had prevented me, although I know that they couldn't. How can I stop being angry, forgive myself and move on? Thanks a lot. Now, this anger in... And I'm just going to throw it out here. When anybody tells me that they have a lot of anger toward themselves, I it always to me is like this huge red flag that's like mop, mop, depression. Now, depression can have a lot of reasons it exists. We can have depression straight up. We have major depressive disorder. That's how it pre- presents itself. Maybe it's genetic. Maybe it's situational. But either way, we've been feeling down. We're not enjoying what we used to. We have changes in our sleep or appetite. And it's been going on like every day, most days for at least two weeks. Okay. Check, check, check. We meet all the criteria. But also we can be depressed as a like adjacent component of our ADHD. When we have severe ADHD, we are low on dopamine. Those dopamine transponders aren't there to bring that dopamine along. Like, come on. And so that's why we have a tough time concentrating or focusing on things that aren't interesting to us because there's no dopamine and our brain really needs it. And so it's like, let's find something else to give us that hit. Okay. And so not having that dopamine can make our mood really low and we can feel very depressed also. Um, And so it could be coming from a lot of different places, but for this person in particular, this anger in it sounds potentially depression related. And so I would encourage you, I mean, there's things you can do and I'll give you some tools you can utilize today, but I do think seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist in your area is going to be beneficial for you. So I would look into that, make sure you can afford it, make sure it's covered by your insurance or it's through, you know, whatever system of care you have, get on a list. Let's start this process. There's also um, Talkspace BetterHelp. I link BetterHelp in the descriptions of videos because you get a discount. I've had a, a, um, you know, a deal with them for years and years. So you can always utilize that. And that gives you at least a lower cost option too. Um, But this sounds like depression. Now, some things that we can do if we're feeling this anger in, anger in all the time is to not only, first tip, pay attention to your self-talk. I know. I'm not good at it either, you guys. I I know how hard it is. I know how easy it is to fall into that like negative thought spiral and be like, God, you're so lazy. You're so stupid or such. Nobody would want to be with you. Yada, yada, yada. But work to fight it. And remember, we can't fight with toxic positivity. We can't be like, you know what? I'm the best thing out there. Everybody should love me. Blah, blah. We can't do that either. But what we can do is we can bridge statement it. So if my thought, because I tell myself this a lot and I don't know why and it's not helpful, 
I always am like, oh, you should get up early, Katie. You're so lazy. Uh, spoilers, I'm not just not a morning person. So I'd rather work later. That's just me. But I have a tough time at least once a week. I tell myself I'm such a lazy son of a bitch. Why don't I get out of bed? Jesus Christ, Katie, get it together. Right. And I just shit talk myself. And that's not helpful. And so instead of allowing that to continue and allowing my brain to go down this like swirly twirly rabbit hole of like all the ways that I think I'm not doing enough, I'm like, I try to stop that thought from continuing. And I say something like, remember, you don't have to work against your brain. You're not a morning person. Even if you did get up, you wouldn't get anything done, which is true because I've tried it. Okay. Um, so have some ways that you can kind of argue back in moderation. Maybe I'm not as stupid as I think I am. It's possible that I'm not as lazy as I'm trying to, you know, b- make myself believe. Uh, maybe I'm not as bad of a person. Maybe, you know, in the maybes and the possibilities. And I'm open to the thought that Katie could be right, maybe about this, right? All of that doesn't sound a ton more positive, but it's not as negative. And trust me, when I tell you, you will feel the difference. And so that's something you can do today. Notice yourself talk, argue back against it. Um, Another, obviously reach out to your therapist or psychiatrist. Medication could be helpful. I also find um, anger to be helped through movement. And I know you're like, what? But sometimes like going for a walk, getting your body moving, stretching. Um, One of my patients used to find doing kickboxing class or some like more exerting type of thing, very helpful. I had another patient also really like yoga. Um, You might say like, but you're angry. Wouldn't you want aggressive movement? Not always. For some people that actually makes it feel worse. Um, But one of my patients used to love to kick a ball against a wall down at the park. Whatever works for you, but I think movement is really helpful. Um, also, petting animals can release some feel-good hormones and maybe can pull us out of this kind of experience that we're having. But that's really, that's where I think this is at. Now, I know you have a component here of like forgiving yourself and moving on. I think it's the rumination that's a component of the depression that's causing this. So I'm, I don't, I'm not going to focus on that at this point. Maybe down, like an, a, down the line we find the forgiveness component still needs to happen. I suspect that it will come along with the the decreased symptoms of depression, okay? And the decreased shit talking. But keep me posted, okay? Now, there was a comment on this as Katie, as an add-on, I am starting CFT. Now, CFT is compassion-focused therapy, and I don't practice it myself. Um, so they said, I tried to find a video of you talking about it, but I didn't see it because I don't have one. Um, I haven't heard of this therapy either. I had to look it up. So it says, I've never heard of this therapy. I'm having the same issues. I hate myself and I have so much shame, anger, and disgust towards myself. I think people complimenting me are lying. CBT didn't work for me. How can I redirect my thoughts if I think the good thoughts are full of crap? How is this different? And do you think this would work for someone like me? P.S. I have ADHD, major depressive disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder. I'm also a perfectionist that screws up a lot. (laughs) That last little thing just made me giggle. Okay. I have the same answer for you. I'll tell you all. So I looked up what compassion-focused therapy was because, again, I haven't heard of it. I don't practice it. There are a ton of therapies. I wish I could know them all and understand them all on a deep level, but it's a lot. Even with my DBT certifications, I have not gotten recertified, you guys. Somebody was mad about that back at like a couple of months ago, and I'm like, I don't have a practice right now, so I don't feel the need to keep up. It's like every three years, I think you have to get recertified. So it's been like five. So anyway, 
Compassion-focused therapy is a therapeutic approach that aims to help those who struggle with shame and self-criticism, often resulting from early experiences of abuse or neglect. CFT teaches clients to cultivate the skills of self-compassion and other-oriented compassion, which are thought to help regulate mood and lead to feelings of safety, acceptance, and comfort. So essentially, this is just from psychology today. Um, now, it I think based on what, what little we all know about CFT, it could definitely help you. Now, I'm suspicious about your treatments for ADHD and major depressive disorder. Are we on medication? Are we open to medication? Are, have we done other techniques or managed? And I know you said the good thoughts are full of crap, but what if they're just bridge statements? What if they're not good thoughts? What if they're just not shitty thoughts? Would that work? Those are kind of the ways where, I mean, I'm not saying CFT wouldn't be beneficial because I think it totally could, but I also think there's some other elements in there that we can work with. And I think also side note, okay, I'm not a doctor, but I have tons of patients over the years in the hospital, out of the hospital, my private pay clients and my outpatient practice see a reduction in their depressive symptoms when they go on ADHD medication. And this is like the Ritalins of the world. And I know people can have like judgments around treatment for ADHD. I'm not here to tell you you have to do it. I'm just saying that it is used off label because I talked to one of my friends who's a psychiatrist. ADHD medication is often used off label for major depressive patients who struggle with the side effects of SSRIs or SNRIs, meaning they don't like the sexual dysfunction or the weight gain, or maybe it makes them too tired or it makes them too hungry. They find themselves binge eating. There's a ton of different side effects on all types of medications. Always ask about those so you're informed, so you know what to look out for. But when we don't tolerate the medication for depression, a lot of psychiatrists turn to ADHD medication. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. Talk to your doctor. Ask them about this. But that's why I'm curious about it for this person in particular, because we have the already going on. And so I'm wondering, talk to your psychiatrist about it, ask questions, see if maybe there's a different medication we could try. If we're not on medication, is there something that you're open to giving, you know, a full go for? Um, I do know that my patients who've tried like the non-stimulant medications for ADHD wasn't as effective. So again, this is just like my N and my study of, I don't know, maybe like 10 patients over what, 12 years or 15 years. So anyway, that, th those are my thoughts. A CBT probably didn't work because the good thoughts, you can't do that, but let's bridge statement it and let's give that a try. And I think CFT could be incredibly beneficial because it sounds like it's, ex it's like a therapeutic approach aimed to treat exactly what you have, Right. You struggle with shame, self-criticism, and things resulting from early abuse or neglect. So I do think that could be helpful. Um, yeah, this has even used it for anxiety disorders, mood disorders, which is essentially uh, bipolar disorder, depression, things like that. Personality disorders, all sorts of things, anger issues. I think it could be helpful. So keep us posted. I, again, I don't practice CFT, but that doesn't mean it's not effective. And that doesn't mean it won't help you. So I'm really glad you're trying it out. And let's bridge statement those thoughts. Now, there was another question on top of this it said, continuing on the topic of having missed things because of mental health. Remember the person at the beginning said they feel like, you know, they, they're angry because they feel like they should have done more and not been so hard on themselves. So, missing things because of mental health. I'm feeling so 
behind in my life compared to my peers because of my mental illnesses. And at the same time, I'm afraid of growing up as I'm really afraid of moving out of my parents' house. And for many reasons. First of all, I'm afraid of not going, that I'm not going to be able to make it. I'm afraid I won't have enough money to live and or won't find a good job. Now, when anybody ever tells me that, I always want to ask, especially when we're like moving out of our parents' house, would there be an opportunity to come back if it didn't work? Do we have the safety net? When we move out on our own, are we open to having a roommate or two? That helps with the cost of rent and the splitting up of like your electricity, you know, all your utilities. Those are things to consider, okay? So it says, um, I won't have enough money to live and or won't find a good job. I'm moving out as soon as I have one. Good for you. I'm really anxious about the future. I never had a boyfriend and I'm a bit nervous that I won't find somebody. But I'm also afraid of moving far away because I feel this very strong responsibility towards my grandma and I don't want her to be alone because I feel like I can't cannot count on the rest of my family to be there. But at the same time, I want to go far away because I need a break from my family. Maybe you have tips for me on how to deal with my anxiety about the future, but also responsibility in general. Okay, now a um, couple things. Like I said about being able to move back, all of that, consider that. It does sound like we have generalized anxiety disorder, and I'm curious if you're getting treatment for it because it sounds like it's running amok. It's, we're worrying about everything future-related. Um, we're thinking about maybe we'll never find some. We're jumping to conclusions here. I never had a boyfriend, so I'm nervous I'm never going to find someone. So because I haven't dated someone yet, I'm jumping all the way to never going to find someone. Um, I don't even have a good job yet, but I'm worried that it's not going to be enough to pay my bill. It, we're jumping way ahead. And so my actual advice is to find a therapist and maybe a psychiatrist in your area and start finding tools to manage your anxiety. Now, I have a couple that could help you. Um, when we start to feel our anxiety build, my goal really overall for you is to get to know your anxiety. How does it feel in your body? How does it feel in your head? How does it feel as it builds up? Can we track it back farther and farther? There is a ton of power and insight into recognizing our mental health symptoms earlier on. So before we're spiraling out about I'm never going to find anybody or I'm never going to be able to afford anything, like how has the anxiety gotten to that point? Do we ever have days where we don't feel anxious? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Where do we feel the anxiety in our bodies? Is it in our chest? Is it in our head? Does it feel like our head is buzzing? Does it feel like we can't catch our breath? Like what is it, right? We have to start to think about it. Do you start to feel tense or like maybe you grind your teeth? Um, let's start to get to know it. Because until we understand it, we can't manage it. And we need to know how it manifests so that we can use our tools sooner rather than later. Okay? So get to know your anxiety. Then my second tip is really, if if you feel it in your body a lot, it can help to do a body shake. I talk about those things all the time because it's helpful for me. I'm more of an anxious person too. And if I start to think, or if I start to have my thoughts, not think, start to have my thoughts swirl, I will get up and shake it out. I'm talking stomp my feet, shake my arms out, shake my body. Now, I know if we have chronic illness or we're recovering from a surgery or some kind of ailment, we might not be able to do that. If you can stomp your feet, you can do that. If you can just shake out your arms, that can help. Any amount of movement through our body is going to be good. If we can just go for a walk, that works as well. But what we're doing is trying to give an outlet for our nervous system. We're trying to let our nervous system dump all of that queued up energy that is feeding our anxiety, okay? So that's something you can do. And then... When we find the thoughts running away with themselves, I know there's a ton of um, information out there and we used to think that 
saying stop, 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 stop in our head would help with thought stopping and it would slow down these anxious thoughts. But the more research that's done and the more we talk about things, that's the wonderful thing about being online and social media. It's more connectivity. We have more information about research and people and what's working or not. We find through research that that's actually not the most beneficial. And you guys have told me that for a long time. But what we find to be the best is to want do one of two things or maybe both. Number one is to see that thought come up, okay? My racing thought, I'm, I've never had a boyfriend. Oh my God, I'm never gonna be happy and acknowledge it. Tell yourself what that thought is. Wow, I'm having that thought again that this is gonna happen. We take a breath and we say, you know what? That's just a thought. And we're trying to slow it down so that we don't let that thought, you know, expand into like 27 other thoughts, right? Because that's kind of what happens. It's like, you know, they just multiply in our brain. So acknowledging, hey, this is the thought that I'm having. It's just a thought. It's not based in fact. I can't check any facts because there aren't any. Hmm, it's just a thought. I should let it go. Now, sure, it can come right back. That's I'm having that thought again. Interesting. Maybe I should do a body shake. Maybe I should just start talking to somebody, right? All of those things. So that's one is just paying attention, acknowledging this thought, letting it go. And the second and the one that I personally find more helpful, but to each their own, is that I will be like, oh, I'll recognize I'm having those thoughts again. It's not helpful. And I'll say to myself, tell me about your trip to Costa Rica or tell me about that time you and Sean were in Amsterdam and that afternoon when it was pouring rain or tell me. And I replay happy memories in my brain. Remember that really nice day you and Sean had out at Lake Travis? It's just outside Austin. You know, tell me about that. And I go in as much detail as, oh, I remember we slept in, like I was wearing this clothing. I remember putting my sunscreen on. I remember smelling the sunscreen. I remember putting Roxy's, you know, her life jacket on. Like as much detail as you can, tell me about it. And using all of your senses, what do you eat? What do you smell? You know, what what feel what do you feel on your skin? Like, just tell me, what are you seeing? That I find to be a stronger pull out of racing thoughts and into just a happy memory, which also helps us feel better, right? It decreases the anxiety, improves our mood, I think is really beneficial. So that's my advice for that one. Okay. Now another add-on says, um, about being angry at oneself and forgiveness. Why do I have no problem forgiving other people? but I constantly hate myself and can never forgive myself for failing at life. I have massive double standards and allow people to do things to me or treat me in ways I would never dream of treating others, but I have no issues with them doing it to me. But I would never forgive myself if I did the same to someone else. And I spend so much time as I can, or I spend as much time as I can trying to please other people and make their lives easier as then I hate myself a little less. Hmm. A couple things going on here. First of all, this is incredibly common, but... Number one is the belief that we have about who we are and what we're worth is tied up into this. I believe, I'm just hypothesizing here, but I would bet that this person has the worst self-talk and believes they're not worth anything. Now, this can come from abuse in childhood. This could come from um, 
you know, other issues we've had. Maybe we were bullied. Maybe our parent was emotionally neglectful. Now that is still abuse. I want you to know, but I'm just calling them out in different ways that, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, it could have, we moved a lot as a kid. So we struggled to find friends and then we were bullied a lot and moved along to next just to be bullied again. You know, there's a lot of things that can happen to lead to us thinking that we aren't worth anything and putting ourselves down so much so that we don't believe we're worthy of forgiveness or maybe even worthy of people's time. We might apologize a lot, be like a people pleaser. I think this person said they please other people to make their lives easier so they hate themselves a little less. But that people pleasing behavior can come out of so many things, but feeling like we don't have a right to take up space. Now this can happen to anybody, but I find women in particular struggle with this more. Um, I don't know why, probably societal pressures and things that have been maybe passed down. Generational trauma also could be a factor, but either way, those are some of the reasons I think that this could be happening for you is that your self-talk and your life experience and your belief about who you are and what you're worth is so negative that it makes it hard for you to extend any forgiveness to yourself. And in the same breath, okay? So we can't forgive ourselves, but because we don't believe we're worth it or that we're good or whatever it is, we also will forgive other people for shitty things because like, oh, whatever, I'm not really worth it. They can do whatever to me because that's for some reason what I've been told or taught and believed throughout I, throughout my life potentially. I think that's why these are kind of connected and why we're seeing that and why you have no other, you have no trouble forgiving others, but so much trouble forgiving yourself. So the homework is to figure out where we think that comes from. When do we remember this first being an issue? Do we have any abuse in our past? Emotional neglect, bullying, big T, little T traumas. I want you to think about it. Maybe put a little timeline together. When do we remember first believing that we weren't good enough? Was it right away when we were young? Maybe our parents didn't show up for any of our activities. You know, we were in choir and they never showed up for any of our recitals. Or we were part of this one club and they never would show up for your yearly fundraising event, even though you told them it was really important. I don't know. Could be sports games. Could be any number of things. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Think about it. In there is your answer. That's kind of where this is coming from. And the only way out of this is to change our self-talk. So we have to challenge some of those false beliefs that I know come quick, right? We can just 
feed into that, right? We can think so many nasty things about ourselves and we have so much rebuttal for when we're trying to talk positively. Remember, we don't need to go positive. We just need to be not as negative. So bridge statement that. We need to pay attention to this because we've been hearing these messages from somewhere potentially for our entire lives. And so until we really understand where it's coming from and what those messages are, we're not going to be able to kind of fight back against them. So that's really the homework that I see. And I think that that will really help you from continuing to be angry at yourself and be able to forgive other people for their missteps, but not yourself. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Now we have a last add-on. It says, I would also love to know um, how to deal with anger and helplessness. I have PTSD and sex is a really hard issue for me. Every time my husband wants us to do something more fun or similar to what was done to me when I was younger, a deep fear takes over me. Sometimes I get um, I get to hide it, but other on some occasions I start shaking and crying. I see the disappointment in his face and feel so broken and useless. I feel so angry at myself because I can't just get over it. Getting over a trauma, like just get over it. That's not how it works. I know we all wish we could just be like, control, alt, delete, like reboot, right? Shut it down and then I'll be over it. That's just not how our nervous system works. That's not how our body and brain work. Yes, it sucks and I'm sorry, but I hope that you're in therapy trying to figure out and process through whatever, whether it's EMDR, talk therapy, whatever type of therapy, to process through the PTSD that you sustained, whatever trauma this is attached to. You said like when you were younger, so there's probably a lot of childhood trauma. We're going to need to take some time to either reprocess that through EMDR. We're going to need to talk it out through talk therapy, move it through our bodies, maybe using somatic experiencing types of therapy, whatever works. It's going to take time. And I would encourage you to talk to him about it at whatever level you feel comfortable doing so. Another great resource is the Courage to Heal workbook. I have that in my Amazon shop as well. So if you go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton, it is there. It's a yellow book. It's great. I know there's been new iterations of it. I don't think it matters. I think you can do whatever edition, like the whatever's cheapest. Um, and the the last two chapters, I want to say it's like chapter 19 or 20, they talk about healing so that you can have a healthy sex life going forward. And there's some activities and exercises you can do with your husband. And I know it's going to be hard and we might not be there yet, but I encourage you to let your therapist know about this and maybe say, Hey, I, you know, talk to this therapist on the internet and she recommended this book. Would you, have you heard of it? Do you mind working on it with me? I don't encourage people to use the courage to heal workbook on their own. It's a little too intense and triggering, but incredibly healing, but with a therapist, great. Okay. They'll get you there. You can't just get over it. I know. I wish you could too, but it's going to take more time and a little more effort than that. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, do you have any tips to help musicians who, who suffer from stage fright? Thanks in advance. I find your videos very informative. I'm so glad. Now, I've only had one patient suffer from stage fright. And I actually had talked to, do you guys remember Barry, the psychiatrist? I did videos with him years ago. Anyway, I had talked to him about this. I think, I don't know if that was a patient we shared or if it was a different patient, but I think it was one we shared. Anyway, they usually prescribe beta blockers or propanolol was what was prescribed for one of my patients. Now I'm not a doctor, so talk to your doctor about it. But when it comes to stage fright, that can really help. Also, 
visualizations. Now, this sounds a little different. It's not what you would expect from me, but visualizing yourself like doing amazingly well, playing whatever instrument and doing your thing is really helpful because our brain doesn't know the difference between us visualizing it and it really happening. And so in essence, by visualizing ourselves doing the recital perfectly or performing our, you know, 10 songs or three songs or whatever it is, performing over and over and just killing it. Our brain thinks that we're doing it. And by repetition and by performing more and doing it more, the anxiety or the stage fright that we have will lessen because remember like anxiety or stage fright, it comes from this like uncontrollable worry or fear that we're going to mess something up. But if we feel like if our brain thinks and feels like we've done it a million times and it's always been great, we're going to have less of that. Now, I do believe also as someone who performs, uh, it sounds weird to say perform, but I give talks a lot, right? And I also back in the day, I used to be in choir and I would have solos and stuff and I'd have to perform and I would compete back in the day in high school. Um, musically, if you guys did not know, I sang for all the way through college. Um, but anyways, I think there is a healthy level of anxiety or concern that helps us rise to the occasion, right? A little bit of stress that we feel, but anything more than that only hinders us. And so visualizations, visualize yourself in as much detail, like close your eyes, maybe even put your music on in the background, imagine yourself performing, over and over and over. And I think that will really help. And if you need to like calm yourself down, like, uh, you know, those full body shakes help. If you find yourself dissociating, we can use grounding techniques, you know, look for the colors in the room, how many things are blue, brown, do your ABCs, how many things in this room start with A, B, C, etc. Um, I also know from other friends of mine who give talks and perform that having rituals around performances can also be soothing to your system. So that could mean that every time I perform, I have a club sandwich. I know this sounds crazy. I have a club sandwich in the afternoon. I go and shower and I get, you know, whatever I do this in like all in the same order. Then I drink a Gatorade and I go on stage or whatever. I'm just throwing things out there. But a lot of my friends have these funny rituals that I think make them feel calmer. And I say funny because it's very unique to the person. Some people listen to the same exact music or they like don't want anybody in their green room before they go out, right? You have to prepare mentally, get yourself ready. Um, whatever it is, we can do that too. So those are the things that I'd encourage you to, you know, talk to your doctor, beta blockers per panel could be really helpful. Visualizations over and over. Imagine like the, the set and the theater and where you're going to be and how you're going to walk out like from beginning to end as i say soup to nuts the whole thing visualize it happening i would encourage you to take the time to visualize every day i know that sounds like a big commitment but as this gets better um and as you're doing it more like it, it's as if you're performing every night and it's going to make you feel so much better and so d d like dedicate that time just like you would to rehearsals because it's like your brain rehearsing the performance okay Okay. And then rituals, obviously, like I said, you got this and you're a musician. You should send us some of your music. I would love to hear it. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, Hey Katie, I hope you're well. I asked this question before, but it didn't get answered. So I thought I would ask it again. Great. Always feel like you can ask questions over and over. I try to get through obviously like as many of them as I can. So I watched your video. Am I lazy, depressed, or burnt out? And I know that I've always been a lazy person. I wonder if this is a judgment or fact says at least as long as I can remember, but I think I'm probably also depressed. How do I know in specific situations if I'm depressed or lazy? 
I don't want to use being depressed as an excuse for everything, but I can't tell it apart. And if it helps for context, I started controlling my emotions over five years ago to get attention and I lost control over that. I don't know when I'm actually controlling it and when I'm feeling naturally. Other thoughts are very welcome as well. Thank you for the work that you do. It's really helpful to be able to ask questions somewhere. Of course, and that told him, you know, we all have questions and things that we're kind of concerned about and it can be scary to say it in person and the internet leaves the space for that. So, okay. Now, just like I talked about in my video, laziness, and I'm going to pull this up so I don't mess it up, uh, but the definition of lazy is unwilling to work or to use energy, right? So there, the depression is when we feel like we cannot, we feel like unable, okay? Unable versus unwilling. Unwilling means that we could. Unwilling is like, for instance, let's say, because I'm not a morning person, but I can physically get up, right? So I'm unwilling to try to get up early. Maybe like I don't set, I don't book early flights. I don't do things so that I don't have to because I don't want to. So want. Unable is my depression is so heavy. I physically just can't. Like, I don't know if anybody who hasn't had depression understands this, but depression is like simple tasks in throughout your day require like all the energy you have. And so it's almost like you have to kind of pick and choose what you're going to do because you're so exhausted and everything feels like such a job, right? Everything from showering to feeding yourself to getting out of bed, like depending on the level of your depression, each of those things can feel impossible. And it can feel like I get to choose one thing to do today, right? And for some of us who are what I would call like high functioning depression, like white knuckling through life, it's like we're able to do just barely what's being asked of us, like get to work, do our job and get home. And then we're like wiped out. That's like all we can do. There's nothing left for like us to make dinner, to have social plans, to do any homework from therapy, any of that stuff, because we're, we can't. And so I want you to know that if you feel like, because you're saying you've been lazy, you've always been a lazy person. And I want to push back against that. I don't know a ton of people who have always been lazy. Maybe you have, maybe you were super, super spoiled as a kid. And so you didn't have to do a lot of things. So then the thought of having to do it yourself, you're like, I don't want to, right? Maybe, but, and then no judgments there either, right? It's good to know where it's coming from, but tease out, just like I did in that video, those symptoms, does it feel like you cannot, you are unable, be honest. And I don't want this judgment like, well, I should be able to do, no. Do you, is it emotionally too exhausted? It takes too much energy for you to do that. Be honest. That's where you'll find your answer. Because being lazy is we're unwilling. We could do it. Don't want to. Right? Um, and so I think it's possible that you've always thought you were lazy, but you probably had depression for a really, really long time. I wouldn't be surprised if it's like dysthymia like that. I forget what they call it now. It almost flew out of my brain. But a dysthymia is essentially like a low-grade depression that lasts for at least two years. And when I say low-grade, I don't mean it feels better. I just mean it's it's usually not as intensive, but it's in completely life-hindering, right? Um, okay, and then you said for context, you started controlling your emotions. So does that mean, when you say controlling, because I don't really like to use the word control because we don't have control over them. Do you mean stuffing them down? I think that might be it. And I would assume that that is perpetuating, if not exacerbating your depression. Um, so yeah, I would encourage you to reach out, speak up, see somebody about this. Since you 
know you're depressed, I'd assume you've seen someone that's you've been diagnosed, let them know this is happening. Maybe the medication that you're on isn't working. Maybe the therapy style that you have been practicing isn't helping. You know, we probably need to mitigate those negative self-talk things. We also probably need to move our body a little bit and shower. Shower can change your life, especially when you're depressed. I know it sounds like a lot of energy. So maybe that's the one thing we do. But those are really my thoughts about it. I don't know. Again, I'm going to push back. I don't know if you've been a lazy person for like forever. Because you said forever, as long as you remember. I think you might have been depressed for as long as you remember. Rewatch my video. Am I lazy, depressed, or burnt out? And think about, am I unwilling or am I unable? And think about the symptoms of depression. How long have those been present in your life? How long have you not enjoyed things? How long have you struggled to sleep or had a disruption in your sleep? Want to sleep all day, can't sleep at night. Um, Want to eat and binge eat or not eat at all? Like, have we had any disruptions? Um, Are we feeling like kind of down and out most days? I have a feeling that's what's going on. Now, there was a comment on this as as an add-on, Katie, I struggle with this as well. And I'm working or and I'm wondering how complex PTSD and anxiety can play into this. Like, how can I tell if um, in a specific moment, if I'm avoiding something and would need to push myself a little bit in an exposure way, or if it's overwhelm and overstimulation, and it would be good to retreat and recharge and rest because the need in both seems to satisfy. It seems to be safety and control. So I don't really know how to tell the difference. Okay, so we're gonna have to do a little bit of what I call internal research. Now, if you've been overwhelmed or overstimulated recently, enough so that you maybe didn't dissociate, so you have memory, because we're gonna have to try to find one of these or possibly try one and learn, because we want to know what overstimulation and overwhelm feels like in our brain and body, meaning, do I start to feel myself sweat? I have a lot of patients that they'll get overheated. That's how the overwhelm begins. Do I find myself clenching, like my muscles clenching? Could be muscles in my jaw, muscles in my hands. Is it muscle, you know, do I find myself curling my toes? The most common is usually jaw and hands, but think about it for you. Everybody's different. Do I pull my shoulders up to my ears? Let's notice because The only way we're going to know if something is like an overstimulation and we need to retreat or recharge is to know what it feels like. And I will also tell you, unfortunately, that once we learn that, we're going to have to put that on kind of a scale so that we can do exposures because exposures do push the overwhelm. But the key component, and I've mentioned this before, the biggest piece of exposure therapy is you having resources that you can utilize when you start to feel overwhelmed and you pull yourself back from that exposure. Meaning, let's say I'm afraid of heights and I come up with a hierarchy of fear, like the lowest being, I don't know, um, going out on a second store balcony. And I'm like, I'm okay. I, it's not so far. If I, you know, I feel like I could land on my feet if I fell and I don't feel so scared. But, you know, there might be more things like going up in an elevator and knowing I'm going up to like the 10th floor or like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not afraid of heights. So I'm not really sure how that feels to people going on a hike, walking too close to the edge. All that stuff can freak me out, right? I put together my hierarchy from zero being I'm so calm. This doesn't freak me out at all. 10 being like I'm dissociated or I'm having a panic attack or it's full blow. It's too much, right? Building that hierarchy 
and then building the resources, the ways to calm our system down when we are building up into two, three, four, you know, we're going up the hierarchy. How do we calm our system down? Do we do a full body shake? Do we do some breathing exercises? Do we, you know, walk around? Do we call somebody? What do we do? We have to have those built up first so that as we learn to push ourselves a little bit and that overwhelm starts to creep up, we have some tools to bring us back down. And yes, that bringing us back down is part of that retreat and rest section. But we're going to always kind of want to push ourselves until we need to retreat and rest. And the goal always with me and my patients has been like getting them to like a five, maybe a six, and then we want to calm down. And we start sometimes like the three and four and you kind of work your way up. But as you get into it, that's about where we're wanting to bring ourselves back down. It's about that five, like that halfway point, right? Um, and so I think it's kind of teasing out how the overwhelm and the overstimulation starts to feel for you earlier on. And even what what's the like levels of that? Let's be a little curious, right? What's level one, two, three, as we start to feel that build. Tell me how it feels in your body. Tell me what your thoughts are. We need to know that so that then we know when to push ourselves up because then we want to be in like halfway there. And when we need to retreat because we're already to seven, we're like abort, abort mission. We need to know that. And no one's going to know that but you. So you're going to have to do a little inside detective work. Okay. I hope that helps. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, at age 14, I found pro-anocytes online that triggered me to start restricting as I hated my body then. Now, if no one, I, we don't use that term as often anymore, I feel, but pro-ana is like uh, pro-anorexia. And these sites, back in the day when I started my YouTube channel, like pro-ana, pro-mia, which is pro-bulimia, sites were everywhere and super detrimental, a very unhealthy promotion of eating disorder behavior, Okay. So this person found him at age 14. Over the past 11 years, I've gone through phases of restricting followed by phases of normal eating, although I still feel self-conscious about what I eat most of the time. I never actually lost a significant amount of weight, so people close to me never noticed it. I don't think it impacts my life all that much. So I wonder if it could be considered disordered eating or even an eating disorder. And sorry for any spelling or grammar mistakes. English is my second language. Your English is impeccable. You guys always say that and your English is always wonderful. Now, if it doesn't matter if people notice it, I know our eating disorder wants people to because it's like a cry for help in some ways. You so say you don't think it impacts your life all that much. What I'm curious about is how much of your brain space is taken up with thoughts about food and your body and eating in general. Because if it's taken up a majority of your brain space, then it is impacting your life. If you feel like you cannot do things in your life because of food, like, oh, my friends want to get together and go out for dinner or for appetizers or whatever. I don't want to because I just don't want to have to deal with that. It impacted your life. Boom, there it is. And you might be like, that's not that big of a deal. Yes, it is. You're isolating so that you can engage in eating disorder behavior. That's not good. We should be able to do whatever we want whenever we want. Take care of ourselves and not have our eating disorder get in the way. So consider that. Now, I'm not going to know exactly like how much of your thoughts are and be honest. Again, I'm not here to judge you. I know your eating disorder is going to say, oh, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It always tells us it's not that bad. And eating disorder will push us to the brink of death and be like, it's not that bad. You're not that sick. Always. It's never enough. That's part of what keeps like fueling it. Um, and so, yeah, I really think that there's definitely some disordered behaviors only you, I don't know all of your symptoms and all the things, but it sounds like you're like, you know, restricting and you've never felt comfortable eating. 
So that to me is very eating disorder like behavior. I would at least think that you have, you know, OSFED or otherwise specified feeding or eating disorder. It might, maybe it doesn't quite meet the criteria for, you know, binge eating or bulimia or anorexia or whatever. Um, but yeah, there's definitely something there. Okay. So again, do some of that research and we have to do the internal research, you guys. That's just how how we learn about ourselves. Now, there was a comment that said, additionally, can you talk about how to gain confidence after an eating disorder, especially thinking about the summer months and expectations regarding bikini bodies and looking fit? This is hard and it takes time, especially after an eating disorder. And it's all about that self-talk. And I wish I could tell you guys, like, I have the answer and I'm incredibly confident in my body. I'm not. And I think to, to... ever, and I don't want to say this like ever, but like, I think that for that to be the goal is, is a little difficult for people. And I don't want you to think that you can't have ever have negative thoughts about your body, or that means you're not recovered or think that everybody else walking around a bikini thinks so highly of themselves and super comfortable. Sure. Some people might be, but I I think the vast majority of us are a little bit self-conscious. So I just want to normalize that because I feel like otherwise we're looking to achieve something that that I don't know if people really want to strive for, or if it's really attainable in a way, especially when we recover from an eating disorder. I don't mean to sound negative. I'm trying to like be real with you, okay? But we can get to a point where we're comfortable. I think comfort and confidence, they kind of go hand in hand, but I don't want you to think that if you ever have a negative thought about your body that you're somehow not recovered or sliding back or any of that all of us do. That's what I really mean. It's like, I want to normalize that a little bit. Do I like that that's the normal human experience? No, but I just want you to know that that's very common. Okay. Now to help gain our confidence has a shit ton to do with our self-talk and who we surround ourselves with, because without realizing it, we can be around people who are judgmental for other people who have different bodies right? We can, without realizing it, have friends are like, oh my God, look at how chubby that guy is or what that lady, I can't believe she's wearing a two-piece. We can have people who say shit like that. And that affects us, whether we want to admit it or not, it's not good to be around people like that. So pay attention to that and pay attention to your self-talk. And again, bridge statement it to move it in a more healthy direction. Also, I find, you know, clothing, having clothing that fits us properly in general helps a lot with body image. Now, does that mean you have to spend a shit ton on clothes? No. But if you have clothing that's like a size too small or a size too big and you don't really feel good in it, don't fucking wear that clothing. It only makes it worse. Find clothes that fit you the way that you want them to fit you and you feel good in and wear that. I know. Sometimes we want to wear things that are cool or hip or everybody's doing X, Y, or Z, but we're uncomfortable doing that. Then don't do it. That's not just because it's stylish doesn't mean that you can't find something stylish that works for you. So that's my encouragement. Notice your self-talk. Notice who you spend time with and what their messages are around bodies, yours, others, whatever, their own. Because people might say things super triggering about, you know, what they eat and when they eat and what they're doing. You know, oh, I'm so family. You know, we have friends that can do things like that. Pay attention to that. And then also, you know, wear things that feel good on your body. And, you know, if you prefer to wear a one piece with your cover up on. And that's how you want to start out. As long as you feel comfortable, that's where I want you to be so that you can talk more nicely to yourself. I don't want you sitting on a beach or at a pool or at a lake with friends and being so uncomfortable that you can't even hear what they're saying. So let's find things that we feel good doing. And okay, does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. 
and I'm really proud of you for your recovery. I know how hard it is. Hang in there. It does get easier. And I want you to have good experiences because we want to prove to our brain that it can be a good thing. Summer can be fun. We can be at the water in a swimsuit and feel good. And I want you to be able to experience that. Okay. Now let's move on to question number six. This question is, hey, Katie, can overeating come from missing life? Hmm. So that you can try to fill a void with food. Yes. It, but actually is a void of immaterial things you're craving for. It's like you're in my brain. Such as healthiness, friendships, lightheartedness, happiness, time, hope. Could it be that I am simply craving for life and my overeating comes from missing life? 100%. Is this already an eating disorder and how do I overcome this? I'd be very grateful to hear your thoughts. Thanks for all that you do. Of course. Now, yes, because eating disorders are coping skills, it's really important to consider the behavior Okay. Now, like my own personal example, I talked about this in the video a while back. I used to go running and my therapist, this is when I was like not managing like stress from school and like I was applying to college. Things were just messed up in my life. Felt very out of control. I was also a teenager and like emotions were out of control. So shit was going on, right? It was like, it was a lot. So my therapist was like, what are you really running from? And I was trying to run from like my stress and anxiety, right? Um, now, not everybody's is that clear, but with eating disorders, it sometimes is very indicative. Now, I'll give some examples. I have a pa- I've had patients many over the years in the more restrictive type, right? We're talking about binging here, but let's talk about restricting. Now, I've had patients who've restricted, and it was a lot to do with self worth. One of my patients felt like they weren't really worthy of it. And they would not only restrict food, but they would restrict other things. Like they couldn't do anything pleasurable, like to go uh, purchase a nice new clothing item or to go get a massage. No, 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 no. They restricted what they'd purchase also because they weren't worth it, right? Then I've also had uh, even patients that restrict sex. Sex is enjoyable. I don't deserve to enjoy things. I can't have that either. My binge eaters, my bingers and purgers will binge on other things, binge shopping, binge uh, spending on other things, and then immediate regret. And they go through these like periods of restriction and uh, binging in money and how they spend. I don't know why there's such a direct correlation between food and money, but there is. Now my uh, binge eating, like just binge eaters can do that in life as well. And they can feel like things are very out of control and we kind of go in these spurts. It's again, it's like the restriction and the binging. We kind of go in these spurts of out of control, in control, out of control, in control. And yes. So because eating disorders are the ways that we cope with our life, when we feel like we're missing life, you can try to fill that void, things that are missing with food or without food, like the numb out effect, right? I think that's the thing people don't understand is we think that eating disorders are all very different and they're all very much the same. I know our eating disorders wants to tell us that one is better than the other. Uh-uh-uh. They're all unhealthy coping skills and they all do the same fucking thing. They help us numb out from life. They help us fill a void in our life with the food or the lack of food. This obsession with food fills that void. And it's very, very common for what you're exactly experiencing to be happening. Meaning that you crave a lot of things in life that are not easily found or easily filled, like void isn't easily filled and we're filling it with food. I've had uh, my alcoholic patients fill it with alcohol or drugs, right? Uh, We do that. It's a way to cope. And so, yes, that's how it's showing up for you. 
And I wouldn't say you're simply craving for life. That seems to kind of downplay it. You feel a loss. You feel there's a void. And we need to find a healthier way to fill that. Now that could be done through therapy and inner child work. That could be done through filling that void with like more fulfilling relationships or fulfilling jobs or whatever it is. You know, I'm not sure exactly because you said, you know, friendships, like hardness, happiness. Like we can find ways to fill that healthily. But in the meantime, we're going to keep doing it as overeating because that's a quick, we think it's a quote unquote quick fix, even though you and I both know that that fix is super short-lived. Oh, I'm so overstuffed and I feel fulfilled. Nope. I, now I feel shame, guilt, and embarrassment about what I did. And now the need to do it again is starting. And we kind of ramp up. And so overcoming it, I mean, seeing a therapist is obviously going to be the first thing. Um, and understanding the role this has played in your life. Like, how long has this been going on? When did it start? Why, why do we think we've turned to this coping skill? What is it about it that feels good? What is it about it that feels bad? It sounds silly, but we kind of have to get to know our eating disorder in order to like eradicate it. If we don't know where it's coming from and what it tells us and what we get out of it, how can we get rid of it? We can't, right? And so be curious about its existence in your life. Um, as much as you can fight the urge to judge, it's a coping skill. You're doing the best you can. This doesn't make you better or worse than anybody else. We all have our own struggles. We're just here to learn about it. Try to show yourself some compassion as you get to know its role and why it's there. Um, I love the book Eating in the Light of the Moon. It's also in my Amazon shop. I cannot recommend it enough. I think that could be potentially helpful. And I am also working on a book proposal about our bodies and food because I think that, you know, the connections, even like I said, with like money is so interesting. And it's not just those of us with eating disorders, we're all affected, right? So anyway, um, yes, you can overall to answer the question. I get way off topic, you guys. We can overeat because we have a void of missing out on certain things. And we're doing that to kind of probably assuage our anxieties or our upsets or just numb out from all that we feel because we feel like we're missing out on life or have missed life or whatever we're telling ourselves about it. And part of your healing is probably going to be challenging that thought process because if we're missing things in our life, we have to acknowledge what we could actions we could take that might make that better and what we could do to improve it instead of thinking that food's our only outlet and then feeling shame and guilt and embarrassment about our interaction with the food, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So let's start there. Okay. Now there was another comment that says, I relate to this. Sometimes I feel like the only thing that I have to look forward to my, in my day is what I'll eat. And I overeat as a result. I wonder if I'm depressed or maybe even agoraphobic since I never want to go out and do anything. I just stay home and eat. Is this depression, agoraphobia, or an eating disorder? It could be any of those things. Now, agoraphobia is... The, the fear of going out, meaning that like we are so afraid to be out in public because we're afraid we're going to like embarrass ourselves and we won't be able to get out of there fast enough. So if that's what's happening, then yes, it could be agoraphobia and that's an anxiety disorder and something I would encourage you to navigate with a therapist, probably someone who specializes in in anxiety. Uh, this could be like CBT or cognitive behavioral therapies in beneficial for agoraphobia, also exposure therapies and all that stuff. Now, depression would mean that we don't enjoy the things we used to, which might be happening here. Um, we can have changes in our appetite, meaning this maybe didn't used to happen, or we can think back to a time when before we felt like this, where we wouldn't overeat as much. Um, maybe we have changes in our sleep. Uh, are we feeling down 
and our mood is really low for like most days, all day for at least two weeks. I mean, those are just basic things for depression. Do we feel irritable? We difficulty concentrating, you know, again, that would be depression. Now, also all three of these can happen together, by the way, with an eating disorder, do we find that we're using food as a way to cope? Meaning that our thought process, all the things we focus on, things we think about is food related. And which it sounds like it might be that because you said you look forward to your day is like what you're going to eat. So that's like all you want to think about. And I'd assume it makes you feel better for a short time. And then we come down and we start the cycle all over again. Um, so that is not a healthy relationship with food. And especially if we have any embarrassment or shame or blame or guilt about how much we ate and when we ate, I would say that's an eating disorder. And we have to understand the its role in our life could be to numb out from the agoraphobia and the anxiety or the depression. It could be trauma related. I don't know your whole past, obviously. But just be curious. Again, not judgmental because it could be all three of these things or it could be just one or two, you know, any combination because when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I don't have the full picture and an eating disorder helps us cope with any discomfort and depression and agoraphobia are discomfort, right? They're completely uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And also the fact that I, I suspect eating disorder definitely too, because you said you just want to stay home and eat. You don't want to go out and do anything. If we feel like we can't go out and do anything because that would get in the way of us being able to binge, definitely eating disorder behavior. If we don't want to go out and do anything because we're like, oh, what's that? What's the, what's it worth? If it's not going to be fun, uh, seems like such an effort. That sounds more depression. If we're like, oh my God, I don't want to go out. It just makes me so anxious. Like what if I get in a situation where I say something stupid? I'm always saying stuff stupid and you worry, worry, worry. Sounds more like agoraphobia. But again, everybody's experience is different. That's just me trying to summarize it like quickly. Talk to a therapist or psychiatrist or psychologist, some mental health professional in your area to get properly diagnosed so that we can get proper treatment. Okay. There's a question number seven it says, Hey, Katie, my sister emotionally abused me when this came. Oh, my sister emotionally abused me. And when this came up in therapy, my new therapist said that she wants me to understand why my sister did it. Why, how is that helpful? This feels very invalidating. It feels like my new therapist isn't allowing me to feel my anger towards my sister. It's like she expects me to have empathy for her. Is it important for me to understand why she did it? Thank you for all that you do. In my opinion, absolutely not. Sorry, I hit the microphone. Um, I don't really know how this could benefit you. Now, I could see, even then, no. I don't understand because for a second I was thinking, well, sometimes I'll have patients like if they're having um, 
kind of conflict in their life with a loved one. I'm like, well, can we see it from their point of view to kind of understand? Because that might lead to how we could fix it or not. And I don't even like to use the word fix, but like untangle or diffuse the conflict, right? Are we able to resolve it? And sometimes seeing it from their perspective can help us resolve that conflict. But what you're talking about is abuse. And I don't, that can't be resolved. You have to process it and you have to get to a place where it's not as emotionally charged for you and you don't feel as dysregulated by it. Whether like, you know, that's talk therapy, EMDR, somatic, whatever it is, right? I don't know why it would matter how, why she did it. I, I cannot see a reason why we would need to know that. I feel like that's looking for like, yeah, for you to feel empathy for her, like you said, and you're wanting empathy for your situation, which I totally understand. That's why you're in therapy. I would encourage you to bring this up with your therapist and say that you don't understand why this is important. You actually find it really invalidating. Let them know what you said to like, tell them what you told me. Say, I find it really invalidating. And I feels like you're wanting me to empathize with my sister, but she was my abuser. You know, I want you to understand that. I need you to at least validate that experience. And if they can't, then I don't know if it'd be a good fit for you because we have to have a therapist who sees and hears us and like validates our experience. Sure, down the line, if they think there's some benefit to understanding this, we can get to that. But I feel like first, there we need to have some like validation for our patient's experience 100%. It's called like unconditional positive regard. It's like holding space for your patient. So if you sit with someone, even if, you know, you think what they're doing to themselves is really harmful, like that happens a lot with my eating disorder patients or my patients who struggle with self-injury where I'm like, oh, that's really hurtful and I want you to stop it. I can't do that right away, right? I have to hear them out. I have to understand where they're coming from because then and only then can we move to a place where we can heal and stop doing that thing, right? Uh, I don't understand. So yeah. I'd ask her about it. I'd say this to her. And if it's not a good answer and you're like, I feel totally invalidated. This makes it even harder. And I don't think I can even talk to you about this. Then we probably don't want to see her again. We want to try to find somebody else. Because I just cannot. Even when I read this question, when I was selecting them, I was like racking my brains. I'm like, I don't even know why they would do this. So no, there's no reason that I think this would happen. And I'm so sorry that you're going through it. But we can always find you a therapist who gets it, who can validate your experience and offer you that support that you need and deserve. Okay. Final question, question number eight says, Katie, can somatic experiencing work for someone with dissociation? Great question. My therapist wants to try somatic therapy and I was and am open to it, but I have doubts about knowing how my body feels. I mean, half the time I can barely feel my body. You are not alone. Um, Okay. Yes, to answer your question succinctly, yes, somatic experiencing or somatic work. If anybody's wondering, like, what the hell does that word mean, Katie? Somatic means in your body, means feeling things in your body. So you're experiencing an emotion in your body and I'm moving it through. So it's movement based. Um, it's also body based. Okay. We can do, um, you know, trauma informed yoga is a great example of this, like letting our bodies flow out that kind of trauma. Like we can feel trauma in our, right? The body keeps the score. This is a book that, um, you know, Vander Kolk wrote and people always make a joke about like, I wish my body stopped keeping the score, but our body keeps the score. And so because our body remembers, sometimes if we can feel like someone grabbing our arm from a traumatic assault movement and like shaking that person off and imagine ourselves like, ah, it can feel really good and releasing that energy can be healing. Now, 
If we dissociate and we're not in our bodies, how can we do that? It's a process. And a huge component of somatic experiencing is learning how to ground ourselves and figuring out how to stay in our bodies. And again, working kind of with that exposure type level where we are in our bodies. And as we kind of ratchet up and do some things that might be more therapy based, we feel it go up. We want to bring it back down. We use our resources. And so, yes, it can be incredibly beneficial. It can be hard at times, but therapy is always hard work, right? Like when a therapist is going to ask you when you're talking about something that was distressing, where do you feel that in your body? You might say, I don't know. I checked out five minutes ago. Or you might say, actually, I find, feel it in my jaw. I've been clenching my teeth. Or I feel it in my shoulders, between my shoulder blades. I'm clenching. I didn't realize I've dug my fingernails into my hands, right? People do a lot of things when they're dissociated, especially. And I think this could be incredibly helpful for you. But again, we're going to need those resources to keep us in our bodies as much as possible. But it's also okay to, if they ask where you feel in your body, like, I don't know. It's okay for you to say, I don't think this is a good fit for me. Just because it can work for someone with dissociation doesn't mean it's a good fit for you. But I think it's worth a try. Let your therapist know. I'm sure they know you dissociate, but you can let them know of your concerns and do as much as you can. That's all we can do in therapy, right? But it just because we dissociate does not mean that we cannot do somatic experiencing. Just in the same way, you know, we could say we can't actually process trauma when we're dissociated, but we can still do trauma processing. We just have to manage our dissociation. And the same goes for that. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for watching. Thank you for sharing this podcast. We had a podcast that got like over a hundred thousand views last week. So thank you to those who shared and talked about it because people heard you and they watched and listened. Um, and for any of our new members, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Don't forget to send in your questions this Sunday. Do your homework. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Katie. Anything. Hey, baby, I'm all done.